Bibles to the uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. That's where we're going to be. Um, <clears throat> as you guys are opening there, real quick, uh, just by way of another very brief announcement, um, most of you guys, if you've been around in this church for any length of time, um, you know this time of year, probably over the next three to four weeks or, uh, or so, um, a lot of students will start coming back, getting ready to go to Cal Poly. And so our, our numbers actually swell sometimes to two to three times the size of the amount of people that are here. So, you know, you look around, there's already not a ton of spaces available right now, but as, especially the next few weeks as uh, students start coming back, uh, we pretty much end up using every single space that we have available, people sit on the floor and whatnot. So what that causes us to do is we open up a third service. We do that in the evening at 6.30 at night. And so um, two things. One, just be praying for us as we kind of transition into the fall. Uh, and then secondly, if you are able to actually go to the evening service, our challenge to you would be to consider actually helping us to be able to be good stewards with the space that we have. To maybe consider go to that evening service. We don't have childcare in the evening, so you know we realize that kind of limits or restricts certain people from being able to go there, especially if you got young kids. Um, um, so, but if you don't have kids, if you are able to maybe go to that evening service, that'd be really helpful in terms of space and parking and everything else that we typically will kind of run into in terms of problems over the next few weeks. So. Uh, think about that, pray about that. It would actually be really helpful if you would uh, just make a decision to make that happen if you're able to. So um, Mark chapter 11 is where we're at, and we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We come to a really important passage. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a passage of conflict in which Jesus is approached to, by religious leaders in Judaism, and it's a question that they kind of poise to Jesus about his authority. In other words, asking him, who are you? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? And specifically, they're referring to an event that took place uh, the day before where Jesus went up to what's called the Temple Mount. And what happened on the Temple Mount was that Jesus went into the Temple Mount. The temple was to be this place that was to uh, basically be like a, a lighthouse or a beacon, uh, not just to the Jews, but to, the, to the, all the nations, so Gentiles as well. And it was intended by God to be a place where everybody whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you're pagan, whether you're faithful to God, could come and find God and discover who God is, what God was like. But rather than basically becoming an emblem or a mark or a signature of inclusion, people welcoming God to come meet with God, it became sort of an identification mark of exclusion. It became something that the Jews sort of used as a means of their own exclusivity to mark themselves off from everybody else. So in other words, if you were not a Jew, uh, it was sort of, that was sort of the dividing line, the factor that basically was established. Uh, in other words, they can use to say, you know, we are God's appointed and special people, and you guys are kindling for God's barbecue. And, uh, and it sort of became something that God had completely not intended it to become. And so Jesus goes to the Temple Mount, and he begins to overthrow the temple, or overthrow the, the, the tables in the temple. And as he's doing that, he's basically saying, my house, this house, is to be a house of prayer. Instead, it's become a den of thieves. So in other words, rather than fulfilling the purpose of which the temple was to fulfill, it had completely failed in the purpose that it was supposed to fulfill. And therefore, Jesus judges it. So the next day, which is where we're at, Religious leaders come to Jesus, they confront him, and they basically ask him, uh, what authority are you doing, and did you do the things that you did? And so that's where we pick it up. Uh, verse 22, or 27, I should say, of chapter 11 says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. 
Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will then say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, then they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And then Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. God, we ask you right now that you would help us to unpack, to understand what this passage is all about. And again, God, we pray that this morning would not just be simply information, transferring information, learning something new. God, that we can just simply add to our brain. God, I pray that this would be something that would radically change and impact and affect and transform our hearts. God, so we just commit this morning in your hands. We pray, God, that you would help us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to take a look at this morning is because really in short, as we look at this passage, obviously the element that stands out above me on all other things is the issue of authority. So these were the religious leaders. These were, by, for all intents and purposes, the authorities. These were told that this is called the Sanhedrin, meaning this was a group of 70 leaders or 71 religious leaders, including the high priest. This would have been the who's who of religion first century. Uh, these would have been the guys that had the book deals. These would have been the people that would have been interviewed on Larry King, on Oprah's show. These would have been the people that if, if you know, CNN was going to be doing an interview and you know, uh, interview someone from the religious community, they would have taken somebody from this group of people to come on the show and to interview and talk about it. This group of people basically comprised the main authority body throughout all Israel. In other words, nothing was done uh, except through the agreement or cons- uh, consenting of this particular body of, of people. Um, to also kind of paint another layer of this is that even though these were sort of the, the, the religious leaders of Israel, uh, this put a very large amount of power within their hands. But as I mentioned last week, the temple was not just simply a temple. The temple was, for all intents and purposes, the, the entire center and identification mark of, of Israel's God, it symbolized the center of the religion. It was also the center of Israel's power. It was also the center of Israel's social life. It was also the center of Israel's economic uh, uh, you know, market. It's, it's where they made the majority of the money as a people. So in other words, this 35 acres of what's called the Temple Mount would have been literally the most important piece of property uh, not just simply in Jerusalem, but in all the world in terms of, or as far as Jews were concerned. Very important piece of property, very important body of uh, leaders confronting Jesus. This would have been a very, very big deal. So they confront Jesus over the issue of authority. And as I mentioned, they were the authorities confronting the authority. This is what was going on in the story. So in other words, this issue is all about authority. So what I want to take a look at here this morning are basically three things. The first of which is that Jesus is going to make a claim. So we'll see a claim of authority. We'll see a challenge of authority as Jesus challenges these guys. Then ultimately we'll see Jesus redefine authority. Jesus will redefine what authority is around himself. So again, we'll see a claim, a challenge, and then Jesus' redefinition of what true authority looks like. So let's first of all take a look at the first thing. Jesus begins to make this claim. 
just so that we can all be on the same page, I want to at least give some sort of a working definition of what authority is and what it means so that we can all kind of be moving forward together on the same idea. So on here, on this uh, slide, we have a little bit of a definition. Authority, it's the Greek word exousia. Uh, basically means the power or right, it's just, I don't know, Webster's or something, the power or right to give orders, make decisions, enforce obedience, and have influence. That's what authority is. When the word authority is actually used in the New Testament, there are several different ways in which this is used. The next slide will give you some examples of this. For example, Mark chapter 122, it says that Jesus taught with authority. Jesus taught differently than the other religious leaders. Mark chapter 210 says that Jesus had authority or power or influence to actually forgive sins. Mark 315 says that Jesus had authority to cast out demons. So you can imagine first century people, uh, obviously for the most part, I mean, I mean, bottom line is this, if like a spirit showed up at your front door in the middle of the night, you were tormented by some demonic spirit, you'd freak out just like they did a hundred, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. But Jesus had power and authority over demons. So when he spoke to demons, demons parted. They listened to him. Uh, there was something about Jesus that when he spoke to demons, they listened. In Mark chapter six, verse seven, we're told that Jesus actually gave to his disciples. He delegated to them authority so that they, as they go out, they could also cast out demons the same way that Jesus casted out demons. So whoever this is, whoever Jesus is at this point in the story. He obviously has power to cast out demons. He has power to forgive sins. He has some sort of unique ability to be able to speak and teach like no other teacher uh, throughout Israel. But he also has power that he can give away, that he delegates to other people. So there's something very unique about Jesus in this story that Mark wants us to understand with regard to him. Another way in which we can understand authority is that authority also is always coupled with power. In other words, if you have authority, you have power, all right? Think about it this way. If you have a remote control in your hand, you have the authority over the television, but you also have power. So if someone's watching something you don't like, with the click of a button, you can change the channel because you have not only authority, but power that goes along with that authority. That's what we see with Jesus. Jesus has authority and power. However, we also see that there are others that also have authority and power as well. And Jesus is being confronted by these religious leaders, and they're basically coming to Jesus saying, we are the authorities, and we have the power, and we demand for you to tell us who gave you the authority and gave you the power. <laughs> but basically what Jesus is saying is that actually you got it all turned around backwards. I am the authority and power. You don't come to ask me who gave me authority, but I will inquire of you who gave you the authority. In other words, what Jesus is basically saying, next week we're going to get more into the parable, the little story that Jesus will tell. I won't touch it this, this week. But Jesus tells a story of a landowner. But in the story, I'll just kind of give you a little bit of a snapshot in it, he's basically saying that there's a landowner. That landowner, basically, Jesus is saying, is me. In essence, what Jesus, by all specific purposes, is trying to communicate to these people is that he is the ultimate authority and that all other authorities submit themselves to him. Let me put it to you a different way. Jesus basically is, in essence, saying, the Temple Mount is mine. I own this temple. You work for me. I don't work for you. I'm your boss. I am the authority. And you have misused and abused your power, the authority that has been delegated to you, to rather than use this temple as a means of being a beacon, a light for the nations, You've misused it. You've abused it to turn it into a money-making market. You've abused it. You've squandered the authority that has been given to you. 
you guys ever watch the program Undercover Boss? I know I use this analogy sometimes, but it's, it's, it's just an amazing show. Honestly, it's like I had sort of these categories, and I would put this in the category of redemptive TV. There's not a lot of television that's redemptive. This is totally redemptive, all right? There are so many amazing principles in it, but the point of the matter is this. The reality is, is that what, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the CEO, and, and on top of that, I'm the architect, and I'm the builder. I own this place. I own you. I created you. You don't own me. I have the right to ask you who you are. You don't have the right to ask me who I am. I have the right to ask you who gave you the authority, not you ask me who gave me my authority. This is what Jesus is trying to say. What's amazing when you look at the life of Jesus, that Jesus has all authority, all power, especially in the verses that we've just seen, and every single time Jesus uses his authority and power, it's always, without exception, as a means to help, to bless, to set someone free, to take care of someone who's been marginalized, who's been impoverished, impoverished, who's been broken, who's been downtrodden. Every time. So how does Jesus use his power and authority? Always to help other people. Always to bless other people. Always to go out after those that are marginalized, those that are in sin. Those that have been written off or cast off by society because maybe they have a bad reputation of being like a prostitute. Jesus goes out after them. Jesus uses his power and authority not to marginalize those that are sinners, but to have dinner with sinners. This is what Jesus does with his power and authority. However, the religious leadership of the day, they weren't using their power and authority in that same fashion. They were abusing it. They were misusing it. They were taking advantage of the people. In other words, what Jesus is basically saying is that I am the ultimate king. You are my stewards of all that I have because everything that you have is on loan by me. Here was the problem with the people, the religious leadership of the day. The problem ultimately was that they actually had deceived themselves into thinking that the temple belonged to them. If you've ever been around a toddler, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? If you ever like listen to a little toddler, they're hanging out there. You, you know, you there's this kind of thing. If you're if you don't have kids, you tend to think you're like, oh, they're really cute. Like un until you get in the close proximity around them, and you're like, yeah, they're kind of cute. But at the end of the day, they have sort of this really nasty streak in them. All right, and usually the nasty streak does not come out until you're like, okay, sweetheart, we gotta get going now. And then they turn into this demon. <laughs> they freak out. They turn into this like little Napoleon, just just total tyrant dictator and they freak out yell at you and if they had the ability to formulate words and curse they would but the point of the matter is that they're like no mine no my legos no my toys no my house my beach my sand my play everything belongs to me and we look at that and we're like oh so cute and others are like you don't have kids you're like that's frightening i don't ever want to be around kids this is hideous like get me away and we just look at that most of all, especially if you're a parent, you're like, oh, it's so cute. They actually think those legos belong to them and it belongs to their friends. How much more silly does heaven think when we say, my job, my good looks, my artistic abilities, my wise intelligence, my wife, my kids, my husband, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my everything. What happens is that we fail to see that everything we have is on loan. Something gets off. Something gets broken. Something gets out of sync when we begin to think that everything we have in this life belongs to us. 
we get out of sync with God. We fall into what the Bible describes as sin and sinful proclivities and sinful actions. And when we begin to think that something belongs to me, then I constantly live in this fear of potentially losing it. And if anything comes in and begins to threaten it, that's what happens. It's one of the reasons why if you ever like if you're a parent or if you're not a parent and you've ever watched parents kind of juggling and stressing out with these like little toddler kids and they're freaking out like why does that happen? And you are all critical of that. Cheer up. One of these days you're going to have your own little two-year-old demon and you will live with that same reality that you've been critical of everybody else yourself. You will begin to realize it's not as easy as you thought because the problem is you have a two-year-old that thinks everything is theirs and if you ever interfere with their life and you threaten it, they turn crazy. But that's no different than us. No different than us. We're just better at throwing tantrums, right? We're better at it. We learn how to do it in a way that's not as, like, childish, right? Some of us still haven't grown out of it. You're, like, 26. Yeah, you haven't figured that out yet. But the point of the matter is, is that the reality is we live with this mentality that everything belongs to me. And Jesus is basically saying to these people is that you have you've forgotten the fact. You don't understand that I am the true authority. And every other authority and power that you have is given from me. This, the problem by thinking that we have ownership over these things begins to corrupt us. When we begin to live with this mentality of like, I own this stuff, we find, just like as it did in the religious leadership, this corrupting process that begins to happen. I'll give you a couple examples of these. For example, we can look at our own culture, even on the Central Coast, and we realize uh, intelligence, education, obviously we're a college town, a lot of us are college educated, and we tend to have this mentality that if we think that intelligence becomes the most important thing in our life, that we begin to live for that, and if anything ever threatens that, we get frustrated by that, and so we live for that. Beauty is another example of that. We live in California, and obviously beauty is a big deal to a lot of people. That because beauty is so important, it's, and there's nothing wrong with education, there's nothing wrong with you know, looking good, and there's nothing wrong with other elements of life. But when those things become ultimate things, when we think that intelligence is my intelligence because I worked hard, I studied hard, or when we think that beauty is something that I worked hard for, because some of us, you're just naturally beautiful. Some of you are just naturally intelligent. Some of you are just naturally gifted with certain levels of creativity. You didn't even have to study, you didn't have to learn, you didn't have to put makeup on, and it just, you just looked good. The bottom line is, is you, didn't, you didn't create that yourself. That came from somebody, that came from one who is beautiful, one who is intelligent, one who is creative. But what happens is that when we begin to think, no, oh, this is mine, I deserve it, I'm entitled to it, then we begin to see those corrupting processes beginning to work in our lives and bring about a sense of constant anxiety, constant stress, constant destruction. And we don't look anything like Jesus, who uses his power and authority as a means of giving himself away, blessing other people. The second thing that we see here is that Jesus, is challenged, Jesus challenges these authorities that are in leadership. Which is kind of an amazing thing, because the way Jesus does this is he asks a question. So again, verse 27 tells us that Jesus is confronted by these religious leaders who are basically the overseers over this temple. And if I can try to put it this way, in essence, what these guys had going on in the temple was, for the most part, in all intents and purposes, a racket. 
it was literally just this big money-making racket. And they'd figured it out. They had known, they'd figured out ways to basically set the whole system up where they can make a lot of money. They can basically live very high. In fact, there's all sorts of writings from the first century that basically identify Caiaphas, the high priest, as being a very, very wealthy man. In other words, he was using and manipulating religion as a means to live very large, to live by taking advantage of the people, taking advantage of their weak consciences. It was, this was horrible. This is what was going on. But Jesus turns to them and he asks them a question because they come to Jesus and they says, by what authority are you doing these things? Jesus, like a typical rabbi, oftentimes asks, answers a question by asking a question. And here's what he does. He says, how about you guys ask, answer me this question? So the question that Jesus asks them in verse 30 was the baptism of John from heaven or from man. This is a really important question. And most of you guys remember who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist was a leader in Jerusalem, in Israel, um, kind of outside of the city of Jerusalem, was a wilderness. Um, kind of the, the further east you would go from Jerusalem, you would go into just like straight up desert. Um, it, and it was just, there was literally nothing out there. And this is where John the Baptist would have actually had the majority of his ministry. He'd preach about Jesus coming, preach about God coming, God sending a king. And what would happen is that a lot of the people respected John. In fact, by this time in the story, John would have already been killed. John basically would have gone down, at least in the minds of most of the first century Jews, as, as like a hero. He'd be the guy, like, when you're tucking your kids in at bed at night, you know, in the tent, wherever you live, you're like, I want to tell you the story of John the martyr. Like, he loved God, and he served God, and he died at the hands of that wicked man, Herod, right? And, and it's just like, when you grow up, maybe you can be like John. He's a great guy. And, and every, all the people loved John. But John had a message, and John's message was basically this. He says, I've come to prepare the way of God. And it was basically tapping into all these Old Testament passages that led to this hope that one day God would bring a king, and the king would one day come. And then finally, one day at Jesus' baptism, when Jesus went down out to John to affirm John's ministry, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. I remember John the Baptist and Jesus, they were cousins, so obviously they had a relationship. Um, And he sees Jesus coming from a distance, and he sees Jesus, he stops what he's doing, and basically says these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus comes and is going to be baptized. And basically what John did at that particular point, he says these words. He says, I must decrease, he must increase. That's John's really nice, profound way of basically saying, my ministry's done. I can close up shop. I can actually retire. The very thing of which my sum total of my life, my existence was aimed at, aimed for, has been accomplished. He's here. My whole job, my whole ministry was just to point to Jesus, to prepare the way for him to come. And now John's like, I'm done. Here he is. Later, going on vacation. He had no idea he's going to die, but the point of the matter is, is that G- John knew that the sum total of his existence was the point to Jesus. Everybody loved John. Everybody held John in high regard. So the question that Jesus is asking, who gave John authority? Now, if the religious leaders basically answer, and it says that they consulted among themselves, and they come back, and they're like, we don't know. Did they really not know? Of course they knew. They, they had an opinion. But they were chicken, all right? They just didn't want to answer because they knew what the answer was going to come back. It's kind of a funny thing. There are certain questions that sometimes can be asked or sometimes questions that we ourselves ask where the answer oftentimes is way more than we ever expected, all right? Um, it's kind of like that movie Few Good Men, right, where Tom Cruise, he's like questioning Jack Nicholson. He's like, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson's right. Like, you can't handle the truth, you know? It's like, 
you don't know what the truth comes with. The truth comes with a lot of stuff that you're not prepared to actually sort through and deal with because it's bigger than you can ever even imagine. Right? I was watching a movie a couple days ago. Uh, it's called The Safe House. It's got Denzel Washington in it. It's a lot of violence in it, so I would definitely not recommend it. But there's this line in the movie that basically says this. All right, I mean, anything with Denzel Washington is good, right? Him and Liam Neeson, mm, my favorites. All right, back on track. Back on track. Um, what happens in this movie, there's this line that basically summarizes everything. It's kind of one of those classic movies about CIA, um, you know, corruption and so on and so forth. And I don't even know the name, main character guy is. But basically, he's like a CIA operative or agent or whatever. He comes to find out there's all these layers of corruption. He comes to find out the secret and uh, ends up going all the way to the very top of top ranks of the entire CIA. There's this one line where he's actually, you know, he, he's, he knows the truth about the corruption and he's confronting the main guy or actually talking with the main guy and they're talking about truth. Again, one of those interesting truth claims. And here's what the main guy who knows about the corruption, who's probably part of the corruption, here's what he says. People don't want the truth anymore. It's too messy. It keeps them up at nights. In other words, that's the same way of basically just identifying the reality is, is that to give the truth is also going to give all sorts of elements that you're not ready to deal with. This is exactly what's happening with Jesus. They come to Jesus, and they're like, are you, and who, who gave you the authority? Jesus is like, I'll answer that. Do you answer my question? But with the answer comes a warning that you're not going to be ready to handle. So the answer basically is this. One, it reveals Jesus' identity. Jesus is very clearly identified as the ultimate supreme authority. Now, what's kind of amazing to me about this is that these religious leaders, they spent their entire life studying the Scripture. Their whole career was built on studying the Bible. In fact, most Bible scholars would identify the fact that people part of the Sanhedrin group, they would have actually memorized large portions, if not the entirety of the Old Testament called the Tanakh. They would have memorized the entire Bible from the Old Testament. You would imagine that if Jesus, I mean, in other words, these guys were waiting for the king to come. So you, wouldn't you think that when Jesus comes, he's like, guys, uh, you know, my faithful men, you know, uh, I'm here. The king is finally here. I've come to rescue and to save you and to save the world. And they're like, you would expect them to be like, yes, we've been waiting, praying, studying, hoping for you to finally come. And they fall on their faces and worship Jesus. But that's not what happens. Because the opposite happens. They conspire to kill him. Why? So the first thing, again, like I said, it reveals Jesus' identity. The second thing, it exposes, really, ultimately, their true God. The fact of the matter is, as religious as these people were, as much scripture they had memorized, and as well-situated they were within the institutionalization of religion of the first century, Yahweh wasn't their God. They paid homage to him, but he wasn't really their true God. In other words, it's kind of like people in a lot of ways in modern day Christianity who just simply come to church, they play a religious scene, they come to church, you know, at best, maybe twice a month, um, don't get involved in community groups, don't help out, don't use their money to help fund the ministry, are not looking for ways to serve other people, not looking for ways to help out the church and serve. In other words, they just pay homage with their lips they claim to be Christian, but in reality, there is no real true deference in their hearts to King Jesus. They claim that he's king, 
They're hoping for a ticket one day when they finally die, maybe 30 years out, to one day go to some other ethereal, ethereal world. But in the momentary life and existence, there's really no real relationship with God. There's no real relationship with God's people. There's no real passion or love for Jesus. There's no real desire to give their money away to serve and help out the church or the poor. They're just there. They're just like the religious leaders. Claiming that Yahweh is their God, but in reality he's not. Because their true God, if I can try to, try to pinpoint what I'm assuming, what I think is really going on here, is their true God is power and authority. They love power and authority. They use power and authority to prop themselves up, to make themselves great. And they've actually created, like I said, this rocket. They have this whole system, this whole structure set up, and it involves a temple, it involves people, and so this is one of the reasons why when Jesus comes onto the temple and he stops everything for just a moment, overturns these tables, everything turns into pandemonium, these guys are freaking out. Because in a moment, the entire economic system collapses and they're freaking out. Not only that, when Jesus asks them the question, uh, you know, you want to know who I am? What do you think about John? And if they answer, well, we don't believe in John and we don't like John's message, then the people would turn against them. But if they answer, they're like, we believe in John. We think John was a great prophet. Then Jesus would say, then why didn't you believe John? Because John pointed to me. John's message was, I'm the king. So why are you looking for ways to kill me rather than welcome me? Because the real answer is they're not interested in King Jesus. They're interested in their real God. And the real God happened to be power and authority, misused, abused. That's why when Jesus came in and stopped the economic situation in the temple, they freaked out. It's why when Jesus asked them this question about John the Baptist, they freaked out. Because if they said, we don't agree with John the Baptist, they feared losing the affirmation of the people. Because the people and the temple kind of formed this symbiotic relation that all mounted to giving them praise and honor, which built up their authority and their power structure. Does that make sense? Okay, let me start breaking this down for you guys a little bit further because the reality is that we can look at these guys and be like, shame, shame, tisk, tisk. These people are all messed up. How can they live like that? But the reality is we're the same. We're not too far off from them. Because here's the problem. Really, the Bible is going to basically say this, is that Really, if Jesus is the ultimate authority in the entire universe, then that means that he is your ultimate threat to you living your own life for yourself with you yourself at the center of it. He's your ultimate threat. That's why the religious leaders were ultimately threatened by Jesus. Because Jesus threatened to take away the temple. He threatened to take away the people. Jesus threatened everything, their entire power base, their power structure. Everything was literally threatened to be taken away, and they would have absolutely nothing. So these guys were clinging tenaciously onto something out of fear of losing it, and the irony is they did lose it. They lost everything. So that, just look at this for a second, because the reality, this is the same with all of us in our lives. I mean, the bottom line is this is that if we live outside of God and God's purposes for our life, that means outside of recognizing that God is the supreme authority in our lives and we submit ourselves to him, then what will happen, the Bible says, is that we will find something else to basically be the cornerstone of our life. 
something else of which we will mark and build the rest of our life off of that cornerstone. We will measure everything off of that thing. But if that cornerstone is anything but Jesus, it will crush you. So, for example, if intelligence or education becomes that cornerstone, and you live with that as being the supreme value of which your life places everything upon. Now, for me, it was, it was definitely not education. I really didn't care about education. I, I didn't. I mean, I was in high school, and I surfed if I wasn't going to school. And I was like, about all I did. I didn't really care about school. But others, I had friends, a couple, that were really into education. And there are people that I've known, because, I mean, I've been up here, you know, 19 years, and obviously we live in a college community. There are people that I've known that have basically lived with this as a challenge. Or maybe their parents view education as the most important thing. So anytime they get like an A-, minus, God forbid, then somehow they have entered into this functional hell. Torture, destruction, or a B. Like everything comes crumbling down, and your whole entire life is literally breaking apart because you got something that was subpar from an A+. There are those people that live with that mentality, that education is the highest, supreme, most important driving force and passion of your life. It is your cornerstone. And if anything comes in your way of getting uh, you to not get the good grades you want, it's why some people that are really focused on this will stop at nothing. They won't have boyfriends or girlfriends. They won't play sports. They won't do anything. They will just focus on their grades because that is their supreme cornerstone of their life in which everything else is being built from that. Some, it might be this idea of beauty. And if beauty is the very thing that you value above and beyond all other things, if it's the very thing that you build the cornerstone of your life on, everything sort of stems off of that. And again, we live in California, right? I mean, this is, this is like the home of fake beauty, right? I mean, like Botox, using stuff for your face, and just anything that you can to get rid of crow's feet, because God forbid you have wrinkles on your face. Because the reality is we live in a culture that basically values beauty, but beauty comes by being youthful, by looking like a youth. And is there anything wrong with you know, beauty? Is there anything wrong with education? There's nothing wrong with those things. But when those things become ultimate values in your life, here's, for example, if beauty becomes an ultimate value in your life and you build your entire life upon that, you will always feel insecure. It's one of the reasons why, especially if you're a woman, you can look at other women and you can case them up and down. You can look at the clothes they're wearing, look at the type of body shape they have, and if they are better looking than you, you freak out. You become insecure. You're like, oh my gosh. Ah. You know, or if they are not as beautiful looking as you, you're like, ah, it's, it's all cool. You know? Like you show up at a party and you're like, you look at your dress, look at, ah, it's all good. Because in your mind, you've just justified yourself. You're like, I know for sure I'm better looking than they are, and it's all good. Because, because your cornerstone is like perfectly, pristinely organized. But if for some reason someone better looking than you, beautiful looking than you, or the older you get, this thing that you can't avoid called age, at some point, it will start putting wrinkles on your face. I was reading this article, and it was basically talking about the face we can, we can lie. The face is basically this big thing of deception. Right, we can put Botox on it, we can put lotions on it, we can, I was just watching this weird infomercial the other day, and it's some sort of a wand that you put on your face, and weird stuff, I don't even know, it was a lot of money, but the point of the matter is, we can fake it by making our face look good, but in this article, it's basically saying, the neck tells all truth. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, have you ever seen, like, a newscaster? 
like an older newscaster, like her face is like pristine and perfect. It's all nicely stretched. But then you look at her neck, like it's one reason why they might kind of wear high necklines. But then every once in a while they don't. You're like, oh my gosh, what? That's just not right. Like the problem is, is, is age. And when beauty becomes a thing that defines us, that is the ultimate thing in your life. You will always be insecure. If you build a relationship on beauty. In other words, you think the more beautiful looking I am, the more he will be attracted to me. And if you build your relationship on that, there will come a point in that relationship, if it's still around after a year, that you'll become insecure because you'll begin to realize you're just old news to this guy. And there'll be someone beautiful, better looking than you that will come around. And you might actually catch his eyes looking at that and you will be absolutely insecure because you've made a good thing, beauty, an ultimate thing, and it's become your God. And these false gods always whisper lies to us and tell us you're not beautiful enough, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, and you will always be insecure because what you're doing is you're trying desperately to hold on to it. Just like the religious leaders were trying desperately to hold on to the temple, and they were willing at no, no end, no price, too high to pay to hold on to it. And yet in the end, they lost everything, as we will lose everything if we make that our ultimate goal. The final thing is that you can even think about this reality is that we live with these false cornerstones in our lives. We love affirmation. We live for this. It's one of the reasons why like, we have smartphones, right? I mean, smartphones are like these affirmation devices, right? It's one of the reasons why you can't go like every time your phone buzzes, you're like, oh, is there another comment for Instagram? Like, oh, no way. I just want to see what they have to say about me. Like, oh, right, I got like five like little hearts. That's so cool. And like, we're like, we feel good about ourselves. Like, oh my gosh, I got six new friends on Facebook. This is amazing. Like, and we love being affirmed. And the problem is, is we build our lives on these things. And it will let us down. At some point, it will crush us. Because the bottom line is, is that Jesus' authority and power ultimately will be a threat to our authority and power. Because really what we're looking for is we want to have ultimate authority and power ourselves. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. We want to have sex with whom we want to have sex with. We want to exercise power over people we want to exercise power over. We want to control and manipulate circumstances the way we want to control and manipulate circumstances. And when something happens in our lives that's uncontrollable, like a disease or an accident or a wrinkle in places that we aren't able to control, we freak out or we lose things that we never anticipated losing. We freak out because we built our lives upon those things. And what Jesus is saying really clearly is that because and as he is this ultimate authority, when we make our lives centered on him as the ultimate authority, rather than losing all these things, we gain life. The very thing, really, that all of these things that we pursue after, we hope will give us. We hope every relationship will some point lead to life. We hope every you know, business transaction will somehow lead to this everlasting sense of euphoric life. And it never does. It always wanes. It always fades. And yet we turn our attention to another thing, and we get bound by those other things again. In the end, Jesus used his authority in an important way. And what Jesus is going to do, and the very last thing I want to take a look at, is that Jesus actually redefines all authority. And this is very important. 
Jesus actually redefines authority because what had happened was authority had become falsely viewed, falsely used. And rather than becoming a means by which to bless, help, encourage, take care of other people, authority became something that was misused, mismanaged, and abusive. That's what was happening with the religious leaders. Rather than using as a means to point people to Jesus, to point people to God, like I said, if they were reading the scriptures properly, they would have recognized that the king would have come on a donkey. Jesus set all these signs in motion, all the signs they should have seen, all the signs they should have read, but because Jesus came and he threatened their very cornerstone of which they built their lives upon, their power, their authority, they were ready to crucify Jesus. But we're the same. It's one of the reasons why some of us like Jesus, we admire him from a distance, but the moment Jesus starts getting up in our grill and starts offending us a little bit, starts contradicting our lives a little bit about the things that you know, we think should be, we get a little bit offensive. We're like, ah, pull back a little bit. I won't go to church as much. I won't do as much. I won't be around as much. I won't read my Bible as much. But the problem is, like we've been trying to say this all along, that if you really truly want life, if you really want to deal with the true and living God, you have to let him define himself for you. You cannot be the one defining him. If you define him, then what's happened is that you've created your own God. This God that you create is powerless to save you, to rescue. When life does begin to take turns for the worst, and it will at some point, most of our church is young. When Cal Poly comes back in, the majority of our church is going to be young, and there's a tendency to live within this false notion that life will continue to go on and being good. But the older we get, the more we realize our bodies break down, the bodies of our friends, the bodies of our loved ones, they begin to break down. Things that we thought were uh, basically just regular static elements in our lives, they become dynamic and sometimes they just fly away, they go away. Things begin to break down. And those become reminders to us that nothing in this life stays the same. And they're intended to point us to the one true God who always stays the same. Who is always static and dynamic. Who is life-giving and yet a rock. Moving powerfully, but also somebody that's stationary, that, that we can anchor ourselves into because he's solid. And so what Jesus does is he redefines authority around himself. And so the question that I want to finish with is this, is how do we get past this ongoing threat that we oftentimes feel of our little kingdoms being invaded, which oftentimes leads to cynicism and skepticism? How do we get past this to actually trust Jesus? Because the bottom line is, I think if we would admit it very clearly, we're all very skeptical of any type of authority. We're skeptical of civil authorities. We're skeptical of presidential authorities. We're skeptical of even authorities that are biblical authorities. Like, you know, uh, women, submit yourselves to your husband. We're like, no, that can't happen. Like, submission, that's authority. That, it's got to be a wrong word. And we, res- we revolt against all types of notions or ideas of authority. We're afraid of it. But what if what we're really afraid of is a false definition of authority? What if we're afraid of being taken advantage of by an authority? Of an authority that rather than using their authority in a way to bless us, to encourage us, to help us, to set us free from our vices. But if there is an authority out there that actually uses his power and authority in the way to bless us, to free us, to liberate us, to help us, to love us, to encourage us. And this is the picture that Mark is going to tell us by the time the gospel is over. Because what we're going to see on the cross, that this one from the very beginning of chapter 1 all the way through the entire book of 
uh, Mark, is displayed as this one with great authority, authority over demons, authority over diseases, authority over uh, hurricanes, authority over all things, that by the time we get to the cross, we will see this one with all supreme, infinite, vast authority in his hands, he will relinquish it and lay himself down and allow himself to be bound on the cross, to be tortured, to be tormented, to bear upon himself your sin, my sin, that we, as people that have claimed authority over the authority of God, for all other definitions of that in any other kingdom, that's called treason. We've all committed treason, all of us. And what Jesus does is he pays the price for people that have committed treason for us. So the question comes back to this. Can I trust Jesus? Why can I trust Jesus? And the answer is, you can trust someone that will give you everything. You can trust someone that has all power and all authority and is willing to lay it down because he is so in love with you. You can trust that one. He's given his life for you. This is how much he loves you. So the picture of love in the Bible is not all these little trinkets that God gives us. We oftentimes think of God loving us based upon, oh, he gave me the job. He loves me. Or, oh, he let me have a boyfriend, and he really loves me. Or, oh, he blessed me with a child. He loves me. And all those things may be little token evidences of God's love. And I just realized those are all like feminine examples. Like, like oh, he allowed me to get big muscles. He loves me. Whatever the point is. The point of the matter is this, is that we can look at all these like little trinket examples and be like, oh, he loves me. But what the Bible is going to tell us is that the true demonstration of God's love is not little trinkets, but an event. That on the cross, the one who has all authority, all power, actually uses that authority and power to rescue, to redeem, to set us free. The degree that you see that and you believe that and you're changed by that, you will be transformed. That means that the power base of authority in your life shifts from rather than it being on you and you using and manipulating all these other means to build up your power and authority, whether through good looks, through intelligence, through artistic abilities, through a job, through career, through vocation. Instead, the power shifts to worshiping God alone. He becomes your authority. You become stable. You become like a rock because your life is built upon the rock. It doesn't mean that you don't have moments of difficulty and hardship, but it does mean that when your life begins to crumble because of difficulties and the rains beat, like Jesus said, things come against you, you are founded upon a rock. That means that when you lose things that you love that are good things, you will be sad, but you will not be devastated. And there's a difference. Losing loved ones, should make you sad. It's horrible. It enters into a time of grief, sometimes long grief. But the reality is that Jesus wants for us to transfer our power and authority over to his power and authority, and by doing so, we find life. The amazing thing is at the end of the Bible, we see a host of people casting down their crowns before Jesus as the authority. Crowns have always been symbolic of power and authority. Jesus gives power and authority to his people, the power and authority that all of us have, and all of us have some level, some sphere of power and authority that we've been given to us. For some of you, it may not be very huge. For some of you, if you own a business, you are an entrepreneur, you have some sort of employees that you work for, you manage a company, you know what it means. You have a lot of power and authority. 
And how you use that power and authority is important. If you're a counselor, you speak into people's lives, you have power and authority. Jesus used his power and authority to bring blessing, to lay his life down, to help other people. People that misuse, mismanage that power and authority, they force others to lay their lives down for them so that they can become more powerful. The final thing I want to finish with is basically three ways to just kind of ways that we can think about how to use this power and authority. First of way is that we can use this power and authority that Jesus gives us by demonstrating love and acceptance instead of hate and discrimination. Let me give you an example. Because Jesus loved us and we were sinners, because Jesus loved prostitutes and they were sinners, because Jesus even loved really snarky, uh, critical religious leaders and he loved them. So therefore, because we're confident and secure in that love that God has, we also can love those types of people without becoming critical, without becoming judgmental. The second thing that we can also see is that we can use our power and authority as a means of demonstrating forgiveness instead of holding grudges. Think about it this way. What would happen if we use the power and the authority that we have rather than figuring out ways, contriving ways to demonstrate a cold shoulder to somehow force our frustration upon that person or if they're like, you know, I'm going to talk to you. And you're like, no, I'm not going to talk to you because you're just figuring out ways in your power and your authority to somehow make them pay. You're bringing on judgment upon them. But what would happen if we use our power and authority as a means of forgiving people rather than holding grudges? A third way, using power and authority as a means of demonstrating generosity instead of greediness and stinginess. To use the power and authority that we have and the resources that we have, the time, the treasure, the elements that we have that we've been given to realize that rather than being owners, we're not owners of these things. We're stewards of it. Your money. There's a tendency for us to think it's mine, but it's not yours. If you live in that illusion, at some point you will lose it all but if you live with a mentality, and when you do lose it, you'll freak out because your entire world system is collapsing from underneath your feet and you're freaking out. But if you see yourself as a steward of money, the money that you have that's been given to you is actually a gift from God to be managed, to be stewarded. And God is your God, God not money is your God. You can now use that money as a means of blessing other people, helping other people. The final one is this, and I'll just finish with a thought to you dads. Because the reality is if you're a dad, one of these days you're going to be a dad. If you're here and you're not married, which a lot of people here are not married, but one day, statistically, you will be married, and statistically, you'll probably end up having kids. So listen up. You dads, I want to speak to you, and specifically just think about this. You as a dad, you have power and authority. You have power and authority over your kids. Power and authority is not a bad thing. It's a gifted thing from God. What do you do with it? Well, the reality is that oftentimes fathers mismanage it. Either they mismanage their power and authority by basically being passive. They don't use anything. They don't do it. They don't help out when their kids are hurting or struggling. They don't provide a shoulder for their child to cry on. They don't provide counsel or wisdom to coach and guide their children. Or sometimes fathers misuse it and abuse it. Rather than using it as a means to help their kids, they use it as a means to get their kids to basically be like little serfs or little slaves within their family. Get the controller for me. Make me some food. Crack the whip, jump when I say jump, and the tendency to abuse the authority. But what would happen if you dads used your power and authority within the family as a means of coaching, training, loving, guiding, praying over your kids, guiding them in the path of Christ, and guiding them in the model of what it looks like to be humble. So when you fail, and you will fail, rather than being a nice, gentle, humble dad who's disciplining your kids, sometimes you will actually Tip the scales and become actually cruel and mean, and you will push your kids to limits. And in those moments, you can learn 
to demonstrate humility by asking your children to forgive you. You know how many kids I talk to that are in their 20s? That if they just had a dad that said those simple words, I'm sorry, that would change everything in their life. If the dad used his power and authority to say that, what would it look like if you as a dad used your power and authority as a means to bring that about? Like I said, all of these things I just described as examples. If you walk out of here and you just simply hear those examples, and you're like, oh, i got to do that. i got to write these things down. And he said them pretty quick, so I'll try to write them down as fast as I can or listen to the message because they're so good, I'm going to try to do them. If you walk out of here with a mentality of saying, I'm just going to do these things as best as I can, you will fail within 24 hours, and you will get totally discouraged. So don't look at these as sort of like a how-to message to just make things happen and be a nice person unless you see that Jesus used his power and authority to forgive you, to release you, to strengthen you, to accept you, to love you. Unless you first see him do that for you and that changes your heart, then out of a whole new sense of motivation, you're able to go out and do that as a changed person. That's what the gospel does in our lives. I'm going to finish. We're going to sing a couple songs to close. If you've got kids and you feel like you need to pick them up, um, don't, don't leave them in there too long. Uh, if you'd like, you can bring them back in here and you can worship with us. We have communion in the back and there's little three spots. These guys are going to be coming up right now and leading us a song. Uh, I would encourage you to just remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. As we sing, as we finish, if you're here today and there's anything that's going on in your life and you need a prayer, Maybe there's certain things in your life right now that God's challenged you on, dealt with you on. There's certain issues of authority that you're wrestling with, that you're dealing with, and you need Jesus to wash you and cleanse you and forgive you, and you just need someone to pray for you. We're going to have some people up over here, over by the cross, that will be available to pray for you. Some guys, some gals from our community groups and leaders and whatnot, they'll be there to pray with you. Uh, we're going to sing, partake of communion, we'll finish up, and we'll dismiss you guys. So let's pray. God, just right now, we thank you for the cross, and we pray, God, that you would just direct our attention to that, and you would help us to recognize that on the cross, what we see is the picture of an all-powerful, almighty, all-authoritative God laying that down to take upon himself our judgment for treason that we have justly earned ourselves. So God, I pray right now that you just help us to see Jesus and partake of communion, that you would cause us to be reminded of the broken body, the spilled blood that Jesus endured for us. And God, let that stir, let that just radically reshape our hearts to make us into worshipers.